I'm Maria Metzler, the Executive Director of Helpline House. The global pandemic has affected us all differently. If you or your neighbors need food assistance, mental health counseling, rental assistance, or parks and rec vouchers, please reach out. Helpline House can help in many ways. Find us on the web at helplinehouse.org. It's what we do. Neighbor helping neighbor. Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 206- Four five one four two two zero. Today's podcast, in partnership with the island's own Pegasus Coffee Company, Bainbridge Strong, is proud to offer this special release, Whole Bean Blend for a Limited Time. A medium dark roast of coffees from Colombia, Ethiopia, and Sumatra. It offers a balanced, full-bodied cup perfect for virtually any pairing or occasion. $5 from the sale of each 12-ounce bag will go to Bainbridge-based small business or nonprofit of your choice at checkout. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. Welcome, Podcastville, to the virtual Zoom room. You found the Bystander Podcast. Today, we have our old friend, Joel Underwood, our political correspondent. What's good, sir? Oh, man. What a, what a time. What a time to be talking a little politics, a little rhetoric. Jeez, did you, did you ever think? The last time you, I was listening, uh, I was driving out to Long Beach last weekend, and I just highlight listened to some of our our previous times together. And it's interesting, some of the prognostications and some of the things we thought about were right on the money and some have come true. And of course, the last time we talked, there was no such thing as COVID. Well, there probably was such thing as COVID, but it, it wasn't here and hadn't come to America and wasn't, it, it changed everything. I mean, everything has, has turned upside down as a result of this thing. 
Yeah, we look at the Black Lives Matter and the COVID. Yeah. Uh, you know, we started out with Australian wildfires and... Oh my God, yeah, that's happened. Everything. What we forgot the first three months of this 2020 that's no longer in our mindset because so much is happening. You know, the remote learning from school. The remote learning, yeah. Uh, the politicalness of, I think, both Black Lives Matter and uh, COVID and schools too. And the mask and anti-mask and anti-vaccine. Yeah. Um, before we get deep in the RNC and DNC, I, I have a question for you about vaccines. Um, I know it's kind of off topic, but if we have to have um, all these vaccines for our kids to go to school, and it's Washington state law, that they have to have these vaccines. Why are they ever, ever even considering going back, putting the kids back in school if there's no vaccine in such a strong pan, pandemic time? Yeah, I, the, the difficulty, well, first of all, even the word vaccine is, is loaded. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. We have uh, a, my sort of barometer of the health world is here down at the cafe in, in Shelton. I have, uh, let's see, once a week, I have one of the, the doctors in, in the local Mason County uh, prison for, for Washington State uh, comes in and, and sort of gives me the, the skinny. And then we have the ER nurses from, uh, from Mason County General come in and get, get lunch about once a week. And I always quiz them like, what's going on? How's it going? What's happening? What's that? And is it, you even have to be careful with a word like vaccine because, for instance, you have a wide range. Like on, on one end, you've got the polio vaccine, which is for all intents and purposes, 100% effective. It, it, every time, you know, it gets polio. Um, gone too, right? right. Measles, almost on that, that same level. Not quite there, but, but almost on that same level. Then on the far version of that, you've got like the flu shot that we all, you know, or, or a lot of us get uh, every year. Well, that's somewhere depending on the strain they pick and the strain that comes out each year, it's kind of a roulette, you know, dice roll that they play every year, depending on, on circumstances, that's somewhere between 40 to 60% effective. Is that really a vaccine? No. So the, the main questions about this, this COVID vaccine, what percentage are you going to get? Is it a vaccine if it's 75% effective? If, you know, three out of four times it can, it can keep you from getting it. Um, how many doses is it going to take? Can we mass produce it? Can we get it not just into the big cities, but can we get it out into the rural school districts? Um, what happens if over time we start seeing that it has side effects? Or what happens if over time we start seeing that it's not as effective as we thought it were? Do, do, do we go back and lock back down? Do we change it up? Do we stop giving it to people? There's just so many unknowns here um, that every parent is really looking at the world where they are in their community and having to make a really hard decision. How safe do you feel? Assuming that your school has the option of sending your kid into the school building, how safe do you feel sending your kid? And some parents are, are making one decision and some parents are making another. And, and you and I were talking a little bit about social media before we went on the air. One of the things we have to be really careful of is criticizing or attacking other people for not making the decision we ourselves would make because either way it's a heart-wrenching decision 
right? To potentially think about, we're both parents, you and I, it's the most heart-wrenching decision there could possibly be to potentially put your child at any kind of risk. Mm -hmm. So to come on and tell uh, on social media or whatever and tell a family member, oh my God, how could you send your child into that? That's not helping. Or, oh, how can you keep your kid home? You're destroying the account. That's not helping. For, for whoever, whatever, anyone you know, whatever decision they're making, the response really should be, oh, my gosh, that, that's really a tough decision. I, I'm hoping the best for you. Hoping it works out. You how, know, how politicized do you think COVID has become? Oh, incredibly. I mean, listen, that's that's the the world we live in. Anything's going to get politicized because politics is inherently power and people like power. So you're going to use anything in, in the same way that race has become politicized in the same way that that masks. I mean, these little cloth masks, my little Seahawk cloth mask that I, I wear around. Uh, I mean, wearing one or not became somehow this this political flag that you fly in certain parts of the world and uh, certain parts of the country. That's it's it's become extremely political. The danger is, of course, when we let the politicization of it overwhelm the actual science and facts of it. Mm-hmm. And I am going to do that which I know to be unsafe to make the political point that I want to make. That's when things become dangerous. Yeah. Um, governor, governor, bleh, the governor um, versus Lauren Culp, you know, Culp's camp, you know, came out and had a massive uh, rally and it was, it was almost like he was discouraging mask wearing. Oh yeah. He has, I, I mean, they had one down here in Shelton at, at the park about three blocks down from my cafe, not a mask in sight. Not a mask in sight. AR-15s everywhere you look, but not a mask in sight. And, you know, it's, it's a statement. Again, it's a statement. You're, you're making a statement of they can't make me. And, and I have the right. Listen, we went through the same thing back in the 60s and 70s with seatbelts. You can't make me wear a seatbelt. That's, that's my, my right. I had... I had family members back in North Carolina, literally, who we would sit out on the front porch. You know, they were smoking and we were all eating barbecue and things like that. And I, I had them literally say the word, yeah, I don't wear a seatbelt. I think if I were ever in an accident, my best bet's to get thrown clear. You know, that's what, that's what people say. You can't make me. And in the same way, there is a very independent strain in this country that believes I have the right to make my own decisions for myself, even if those decisions are self-harming. I still have the right to do that. Yeah, and as a business, too, we can refuse your patronage. Right, as long as you're cool with the idea that that, that is potentially limiting. I mean, when I've, I, I, I've had people walk into my cafe without a mask, and I have to do my usual spiel, like, hi, according to state law, sorry, can't serve you without a mask. And most people are very cool. Oh, hold on. I'll go get mine. It's in my car, whatever. There have been a couple of people who are jerks about it. And then we have to, I, I basically have to decide as a business owner, what's the most important thing to do right now is the most important thing to have an argument with this person or to get them in and out of my place. Obviously, if they say, well, I have a medical reason for wearing a mask. And I've had some people grin at me as they say it because they know full well they don't. But as soon as they say that, the conversation's over. I can't ask. I can't say what is your, I, you know, you can't ask somebody to prove a medical condition uh, in, in terms of commerce. But 
what they would then come back at, well, I have a constitutional right that I don't have to wear a mask. I'm sorry. I, I taught U.S. government and civics for 20 years. You don't. You don't. You don't have the right. The, the, the Supreme Court of the United States has shown over and over again that the government has the right to impose restrictions in the name of the public health and safety. We, right. We've seen that over and over again. No shirts, no socks, no shoes, no service. Well, uh, and, and yeah, you, you can, you can uh, I mean, as long as you're not uh, refusing service to someone on the basis of race or, or, or something like that, then yeah, you can, you can reserve service. And in fact, one of the reasons our cafe went back to take out and carry out only, even though Mason County was technically at 50% seating, is we were hearing from some of our customers who were getting takeout from us, I don't feel safe getting takeout from a place that is currently allowing seating. And mm. we felt like we were losing more business from having seating than we were actually gaining because people weren't feeling safe and secure. And so we're like, listen, if that's what our customers feel like and the numbers are starting to roll up again, which they were in Mason County, you know what? We're going, we're going back down to, to take out and carry out only. All right. Well, let's get into the RNC and DNC. Um, yeah. All eight days. <sighs> I watch the speeches that you don't have to, ladies and gentlemen. That's that's the thing. Yeah, I I do it so you don't because I'm a giver. Um, missed one. Scott Bayos. Man, so first of all, let's let's establish some historical context here of what what conventions are supposed to be. So once upon a time, <laughs> conventions historically were where the sausage got made. They were where you actually did pick your party's candidate amongst multiple people who wanted to be the candidate, it actually happened at the convention. The convention wasn't a coronation. It was the election. And there have been some humdingers back in 1860 with Lincoln, where you had to keep voting over and over and over again until you got a majority. And, and finally, you get the person. People went to the convention literally not knowing who the candidate was going to be in the end. That's how it used to be. The other thing that the convention always was for historically was creating your party's platform. So all the different people would get together, the movers and shakers get together in a smoky back room with cigars and brandy, and they decide, okay, what are we going to run on this year? Is being a Democrat about, are we going to say, hey, we want to end slavery and uh, increase Irish immigration or, you know, the most famous one, obviously, probably being 1968 in Chicago when the Democratic Party uh, went to Richard J. Daley's Chicago and had to decide, does being a Democrat mean being in or out of Vietnam? You know, you had to that that was where that sort of stuff was decided. Nowadays, with the way our political process works, that stuff is all pretty much done in advance. You come in knowing who's got the delegates most of the time. You come in knowing who is going to be the candidate. You come in knowing what your party's platform is. Although, you know, with Bernie and everything like that, there's been some, some very interesting give and take on that. So the, the, the convention has basically become kind of a pep rally, right? It's, it's about getting everybody fired up. It is about getting the, the, the starting gun kickoff for this last what, by the time you post this and people listen to it, I'll bet there'll be, what, last 60 days, I'd say, of, of election, probably, about. So, so getting everybody fired up for this last 60 days of crazy um, and, and getting everybody to feel good about our guy, 
whoever our guy happens to be. That's what they've become. So a lot of the substantive stuff that used to happen in conventions doesn't happen anymore. So now it's much more about revving people up, feel-good speeches. Hey, look, there's Barack Obama. Oh, look, Jimmy Carter's still alive. He's awesome. Uh, uh, oh, there have been some great ones. Uh, Clint, anybody remember Clint Eastwood talking to the empty chair? You know, there there have been some some crazy moments that because basically it's all really being done in the name of kind of pep rally and and revving up. And also, by the way, uh, there is a tremendous economic boost that happens for the city where the convention is held. Not so much this year, obviously, because of the the nature of Zoom, but. People have been talking about, oh, these, the, this online convention, oh, they were so great. Oh, we should do this all the time. Oh, I don't think we're ever going to have conventions like we used to. Yeah, we are. Because, I mean, what, what Milwaukee and Charlotte lost in terms of not actually having a convention, I mean, the boost for the hotel and restaurant industry in those cities alone is just absolutely incredible. It it is a big economic. It was like having the well. It's not quite like having the Olympics, but it's like having this this major event in your city where people come in and they spend crazy money, and and that's part of why you have it where you have it. Well, just quickly touch on the production value of the sure. whole event. Um, one thing I noticed there was a lot of similar branding of the backgrounds with mm-hmm. the Republicans, and there was one thing I liked the Democrats did was show different various places around the United States and kind of said that we, we come from all walks of life, which I thought was a nice thing. There was a lot of glitches on the democratic side. Um, and you know, we have a reality star president and he seemed to bring a pretty good production crew to his stuff. It was just a little stale in my mind. And instead of putting out his ideas, it seemed like it was like, this is all the reasons why you should hate Joe. And that was a little difficult, but um, some of the highlights for me was uh, Melania and Michelle Obama talking, um, two first ladies' perspectives, and I thought they both spoke very well. Those were kind of highlights for me. Um, but then I started to realize that Jill Biden is is kind of the equivalent of Melania right now, right? So how does her speech fare against Melania's? And I was wondering what what kind of uh, highlights just off the top of your head that, that stuck out to you right away? Well, keep in mind, first of all, everybody was in uncharted territory, right? We've never done an online, the all online convention before. Yes, people have taped and videotaped speeches and sent them into the convention and they get played on a big screen sometimes, especially when a president's been in like ill health or something like that. But they're two totally different things, speaking and being good on video and speaking and being good in front of tens of thousands of people are two utterly and totally different skills. Yes, they're both speaking, but people who are necessarily good at one aren't necessarily as good at the other. You know, I mean, it's like you're a soccer guy. You've probably known tons and tons of guys who are amazing strikers, but can't defend. Like that's just not their skill set. Yeah, it's soccer. But, but those are very, very different skill sets. Um, I will, for instance, our, our former president, Obama, maybe the best that's ever been in front of a live crowd. 
has that incredible ability with rhythm to feel an audience and that thing that can only come from the African-American church, that, that rhythm of call and response that is just so powerful and knowing when to let the applause happen and to shut up and then knowing when to keep going and ride it like a surf wave all the way through. Maybe the best that ever, that's ever been at that. Then you watch him doing a, a speech on a video in front of nobody he was good. He was good. Is he as good as he is live? No, no, no one is. Now, on the flip side of that is his wife, who I've, I've seen speak live a lot. She's good. She's good. She's not him. She's good. Video, she, that, that might have been the best speech of the two weeks, is Michelle Obama. I mean, just she's she's made for it. The, the camera can it goes nice, and they gave her sort of the the um, the chest up and and to the side, so they kept it tight the whole time. Um, she's empathetic. She is is has exactly the right tone for it. Um, she the camera just loves her, and she plays to the camera well. You know, there's a saying in acting that. You, you just can't lie to the camera. The camera, for whatever reason, for whatever sort of engineering accident that created it, it detects thought. It can see when you're faking it. And, and you can just see she means exactly what she says. And it, it, I felt like her speech, if we're just going to talk about quality, you know, we're not going to dive into uh, uh, yet uh, fact-checking and things like that, but just in terms of pure quality – hers was the best of the two weeks and maybe one of the best I've ever seen. Um, whereas you saw what the Republicans did. They took, and we can have a nice ethical discussion about this. They took the white house. They took a governmental structure. They took, and, and they turned it into a giant convention hall. They took the Rose garden and they sat 1500 to 2000 people out there. And, uh, you know, put people out there. So, so people were speaking by and large, some weren't, but, but by and large to a live audience. Now take a look, contrast, uh, for instance, if we're going to talk about the, the RNC for a second, if you saw Kimberly Guilfoyle's speech, Donald uh, Trump Jr.'s girlfriend, uh, formerly wife of Gavin Newsom, current governor of California. Um, she was enthusiastic for being on tape. Well, she was on tape and she was playing like she was speaking to a full Olympic Coliseum, leaving these big, huge applause breaks and yelling and things. And you're sitting there going, man, is she is she OK? I think they've told her there are people out there. I don't know. But that was that was a little wild. Um, a lack of post-production with the crescendo of fake audio. Something. I don't I don't know what. But then if, if you're asking for the best uh, speech from the Republicans, uh, last night, Ivanka. Ivanka is very, very polished and very, very, uh, you know, obviously you never know how much they have help from speechwriters versus how much they write, they're writing their own, but a terrific speech, well-delivered from someone that I think is going to have a future with politics in the Republican Party long after her father is over. She was scary good. And, and I think that uh, 
you know, there again, just the right tone in terms of playing to the the audience she was playing to. She had a crowd of about fifteen hundred. She rode that crowd very, very well. Um, so there were definitely some highlights. There were there were definitely some lowlights on on both sides. Um, you know, I, I Donald Trump Jr.'s comes to mind with the red eyes and the half closed all the time and 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 the strange rhythms. I watched this guy and I thought. Mm, I'm not sure he could pass a urine test right now like this. I, he may be flying on something. We'll, we'll see. Uh, by the same token, on the Democratic side, there were folks who were really, really uh, trying to meet the moment with excitement that I felt like, you know, does not doesn't work when you're on video. Mm-hmm. I noticed on uh, Instagram, Donald Jr. was talking Red Bull before the speech. Uh, that so, might, maybe maybe a little Red bit of Red Bull. Too much. Yeah. Red Bull gives you wings, I guess, and gave him some. I don't know. He had this American flag uh, sequin jacket on, too. That was just absolutely ridiculous. I was like, please wear that. Please wear that out there. Well, but it, it also makes you crazy, doesn't it? Because yeah. what, what have the, the Republicans consistently been hitting Biden on? Oh, he's nepotistic. Oh, let's talk about Hunter in Russia. Oh, nepotism, nepotism, nepotism. Who were all the headline speakers for the, the Republican National Committee? Tiffany Trump, Eric Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Melania Trump, Ivanka Trump. I mean, Love. I'm surprised they didn't, you know, throw Barron up there and ask him, you know, just what he's doing on Twitter lately. I mean, the, the, yeah, yeah, they can't. And Jared, right. You, you can't like say that nepotism is the great sin. And then your whole slate is people who live in your house with you. It's, it's crazy. Ego's a horrible driver, man, for sure. Um, I don't want to get too heavy on, on criticizing the RNC, but sure, sure, sure. it seemed like there was a lot of misleading and non-factual things and a venom coming from Donald on the last day. And his speech was 70 minutes and it was difficult for me to stay engaged in listening to that. Hmm. And it, it seemed like it was disrespectful to his opponent and that, you know, he had exaggerated a little bit more of his worth and what he's accomplished. And lastly, I felt like he was warning us if we go with the Democratic Party, all these things that are happening currently are going to happen without saying that these things are present day happening to me while I'm in office. Right. right. But to criticize a guy that's not in office yet for the things that are going on during his admi- administration was difficult for me to take listening to him. Did you have similar or different response? Well, I mean, so, so some of that's part and parcel of any political speech or any political convention. But with Donald Trump, we are, and I, I know I've, I've referenced this anecdote before on your show. You know, when you go back to the, to the famous Entertainment Tonight bus tape with Billy Bush, when, you know, you can grab him by the, I, mo- I moved on her like a whatever. There, there's that story that, that Billy Bush tells the, uh, about 10 minutes before that tape started rolling, some camera guys from NBC jumped on the bus and said, hey, uh, we need to record a quick promo for, the, uh, for, for um, Donald's show. Um, and he, they, they started rolling, and this is, this is Donald Trump, uh, star of the highest-rated show on television, 
watch it or you're fired. And Billy Bush knew that it was not the highest rated show on television. He knew the ER was the highest rated show on television. He told the camera guys, hey, camera guys, stick around for a second, guys. We might want to reshoot that again. And Trump's like, well, he's like, uh, Donald, just so you know, ER is the highest rated show on television. And he, Trump just shushes him, sends the camera guys out. He looks at him, he says, Billy, you just say it. Mm-hmm. Just say it. All you got to do is say it. When it comes out of the box, people believe it. You just say it. People don't, they don't care. They don't care. And it's a very difficult thing, I think, for news networks. I, I feel really bad for them to try to figure out how do you cover a convention, let alone a speech, from a guy whose basic philosophy is you just say it. You just say it. Because on the one hand, if you constantly fact check it, let's say just for fun, let's, let's, let's take a, a, an imaginary situation. Let, let's say that, pick your network, ABC decided they were going to run a ticker under the bottom of Trump's speech, fact checking every time he said something that wasn't true. NPR would okay. do something very well. NPR and yeah, some of those some of those networks would do, would do something like that. Well, number one, first of all, now you've just played into his narrative that the press hates me, right? He almost wants you to do that because what is he selling his supporters? He's selling that the press is against me, the press hates me because any good conspiracy theory is self sealing, right? If you've ever been into any conspiracy or you've known somebody who's into conspiracy theory, part of the conspiracy theory is well, if anybody tells you it's it's not a conspiracy, they're obviously in on it, right? It's self-sealing. So in the same way, it's brilliant. If you basically say the press is against me, anytime the press facts check you, well, of course they would because they're against me. And so on the one hand, you can't really do that. But on the other hand, if you just let it go and you just let him say whatever he wants to say, you are in fact using the press as an enabler of falsehood, which is wrong. For instance, I'll give, I'll give you a perfect example. Three different times in his speech, Donald Trump said, the United States is energy independent. Oh, I've taken us to energy independence. We have gone from being an importer to being energy independent. Okay, the United States uses about 20 million barrels of oil a day. Of that 20 million, about nine, almost half, are imported. We import nine million barrels a day. That's not energy independence. It's not. It's not even close. But if you run a ticker under the screen or you interrupt and say, by the way, the president just said that we are energy independent. We import nine million barrels. You're just playing into his narrative that the press hates me. And folks aren't so, so folks aren't going to believe it anyway. His supporters are going to say, well, of course, they'd say that they hate him and, and they want him out of power. So I feel for the media who, on the one hand, can't really fact check. But on the other hand, if they don't, they are using their incredible megaphone, the megaphone of the press, to empower falsehood. And that's, that's an incredibly rock-in-a-hard-place position to be in. On the other hand, you've got Joe Biden and the Democrats who didn't really talk a ton about hardcore party beliefs. They mostly uh, uh, really talked about what could be the America we could live in, the America we're trying to get to, the America they, they were more sort of uh, uh, down the road goals because I mean obviously you've got the incumbent party, the president who is in power, obviously in the, in a midterm election is always going to say things are great, and the party that's trying to get in power is always going to say no, look how it it ought to be down the road. So back to the oil, did you hear 
much about clean energy and the transformation of the platforms towards clean energy for the future or the environment? Uh, I think pre-COVID uh, and, and pre-everything that's happened with, with Black Lives Matter and, and police brutality, I think we were going to hear, especially from the Democratic platform uh, with Bernie and, and Elizabeth Warren and everybody else, I, I think we were going to hear a lot more about climate change. But I think with limited number of minutes on TV and everything that's going on, I think that got pushed more to the rear as people felt the existential crisis was COVID slash economic and the protests that are, that are just ripping some of our major cities apart. Yeah. Yeah. It's just tough times. 2020 sucks. And uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm blaming Barbara Walters because this is 2020. And this is 2020. I, you know, in the 90s. Except some of this is, well, so much of this is chickens coming home to roost. I mean, so much of this is stuff that's coming to a head that's been coming for a long time. Oh, I watched and, this uh, great yeah. video, sorry to interrupt there, No, 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 about Muhammad Ali and talking about changing his name and how he didn't have any beef with Vietnamese people, mm-hmm. didn't want to go to Vietnam. And I talked about, you know, I'm, I'm an Olympic gold medalist. I, I'm a hero and I can't even eat in the restaurant in my own hometown after being, you know, a gold medalist in the Olympics, you know, you're not showing people like me any respect. And a lot of the advocacy that he started back then, you know, is still the same issues that we're having, what, 60 years later. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, I remember, um, if you remember the, the fab five, the, the freshman of, of Michigan like basketball. Weber. Yeah. Chris, Chris Weber, you know, so much of, of this modern movement about paying college athletes has to do with a book Chris Weber wrote. And in it, he tells a very poignant story of walking down the streets of Ann Arbor one cold night and looking in the student bookstore. And there was a jersey, a basketball jersey with his name on the back that was selling for literally over a hundred bucks. And at the moment, he didn't have in his pocket the price of a hamburger and he was hungry. Right. And he's like, okay, so this college is making this kind of money off me, off my name, and I don't have the price of a freaking cheeseburger in my pocket. That's wrong. And I mean, all this stuff is, it's, it's nothing new. It's been going on, but it's, but it's coming to a head. And it's a reckoning that in many ways has been coming to our country since we wrote our constitution that said all, and, and our, our declaration of independence, and we allowed slavery to stand. You know, if you don't deal with the skeletons in your closet, eventually they're going to bust out. Yeah, I find it hard to believe I was I was born in a, a lifetime that interracial marriage was still illegal. Oh yeah, and it just we have not come too far as, as Americans. No, they were still lynching people in the in the late seventies and eighties. I mean, this this is say, we just don't hear about yeah, it. Yeah, this is not this this is is not old history. It's not. Um. I did notice, but I didn't get to listen to Bernie and, and Kamala having speeches uh, to kind of compete with the RNC at the same time. Um, what did you think of Kamala Harris's uh, speech? She's had two, um, right? Yeah, I, I think I, I kind of wish they had let Kamala be Kamala a little bit more. Um, I, I, I think 
the party kind of, and this happens by the way, is you have your own people, you're running your own campaign. And then once everything sort of shakes out, we know who's going to be the vice presidential nominee. We know all this, the party's people kind of come in and start working with your campaign and they make sure that everybody's saying the same things, everybody's sounding the same, that the message is consistent. And I feel like the party people kind of got to Kamala and they said, Hey, listen, um, you need to be nicer. You need to smile more. You need to strike a more conciliatory pose with Joe because everybody thinks you don't like him. And because of what happened during the debates, you're out to get him. And we need to see you. You need to not scare middle America nearly as much. You're, you're not helping us. And so I felt like what I was seeing was kind of a toned down, kinder, gentler Kamala. And, and very frankly, I, I can't speak for anybody else, but that's not what appeals to me about her. What appeals to me about her is somebody who's going to get him. Somebody yeah. who's, I want to see the prosecutor. I, I want to see the person who's going to go on with Mike Pence and call him to the carpet for his stuff. I want to see, I want to see somebody who's, who's not afraid to take on and, and speak truth to power. And I felt like I saw her toned down a little bit. In the same way, I felt like I saw a toned down Bernie a little bit. I like Bernie a little bit more when he's angry. I like Bernie a little bit more when he is taking on large-scale corporations and, and being the one person who is willing to call out the economic inequalities in this country. And, and when he sort of can't we all just get along as Democrats because Trump is the most important existential threat. Yeah, okay, I see that strategically and logistically, but it's, uh, we, the party needs that. The party needs fire. The party needs the engine. It's kind of the seven degrees of uh, Howard Dean, right? when he got a little too overenthusiastic and then he was just shot out of a cannon and non-existent after that. To a certain degree. Yeah. I mean, that was, he was one of the first real victims of enthusiasm <laughs> of, of, of combination. Just the fact that video never dies and, and the beginnings of social media. I mean, that, that clip, that scream got played over and over and over again in the same way that the, the video, the, the picture of Michael Dukakis in the tank and the army helmet, that just, that was the nail in the coffin. I mean, some, sometimes these little images, who let him take that? Oh my God. You know, sometimes these, these little things happen and they can submarine the whole thing. Yeah. Like when Bush was reading the upside down children's book to the kids, you know, oh. he was just in shock about nine 11. And uh, mm-hmm. I gave him a pass on that. You being a, a former debate coach, maybe a, a soon to be a, a additional. Oh, I don't think I'm going back to that world, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But for Mike a long Pence, time. Mike Pence is a debate champion. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about vice president candidates or the current vice president, who wins in a debate if uh, Kamala does not become that strong district attorney, uh, speaking of strength to power? Okay, so let's... So- in the coming 60 days, let's let's lay this out at the beginning. There doesn't have to be debates, right? There, the, the debate, there's no rule that says the, the candidates have to debate. A, a third party proposes, usually a network or League of Women Voters or something like that. And both sides and their people have to agree. Like both, both sides have to agree to have a debate. There's no rule that says there have to be one. 
if I were pretty much on either side of this ticket, with the possible exception of of Kamala herself as a vice presidential nominee, because she has nothing to lose, um, I wouldn't have them. I wouldn't agree. If I were if I were Biden, I wouldn't want to. If I were Trump, I sure wouldn't want to. If I were Pence, there's nothing to be gained. I mean, look, think about it this way. If they put in the most recent poll, they said if you put undecided voters, the people who say they're undecided, together with the people who say they're going to be third, they're, they're voting for third party candidates, together with the people who say, eh, I don't really care, I'm probably not going to vote. If you put all three of those groups together, you just barely get 10%. Barely. Everybody's picked. Everybody knows who they're voting for. Everybody, there is nothing to be gained, really, by these debates. And there is everything to be lost. Both sides could have a terrible showing and you could actually get people less excited about coming out to the polls. There is nothing to be gained by these. If I, if I were Pence, if I were Trump, if I were Biden... It, you know, don't, there, there's nothing to, to be had by these there. The numbers aren't going to move. Let's, there's let's just something to be lost though. For the, first there is something to be lost down the debate when the other person wants the debate. And I think well, so there's a, a bit of difficulty debating somebody that likes to mislead or possibly lie in a debate. So, yeah. So that's the thing. I mean, if I were Biden, the only and it's not going to happen. The, the only way I would agree to debate Donald Trump is if there were going to be, like we were just talking about, some sort of real-time fact-checking. If they were going to, I don't know if it's a screen crawler, I don't know if whatever it is, but unless you can assure me there's going to be some kind of real-time fact-checking, I'm not stepping on a stage with that guy. Why? Because he's shown he just says stuff. Mm-hmm. He just says stuff. And there's no, there's no check in the system. Um, now, you, you're, you're absolutely right. You do have to be careful how you do it. You don't do it in a sense of cowardice. You know, if you're Trump, you say, listen, I have the important job of getting the country out of this recession and dealing with COVID right now. I don't have time for that. And if you're Joe Biden, you say, listen, this guy has shown that he in no way respects truth in media or truth of the American people. Debating him doesn't do it. You, you have to basically say, listen, there's a reason I'm, do- I'm not going to do it because it's not worth my time. Uh, and, and, but there's, there's really nothing to be gained. I will be, I'll be surprised if there's debates. I, re- I really will be. Yeah, I think there's going to be one and then it's going to get scrapped. Hmm, that could happen. That could absolutely happen. That's my thought on that. Because they won't be able to uh, agree to, because remember, they don't just have to agree to a debate. They have to agree to terms. So yeah. they'll, they'll, maybe they'll say, they'll, we, well, we agreed to debate, but Donald wanted to have an audience of 2,000 people, and I don't think that's safe, so I don't want to do it. And, well, Joe's not, he doesn't want to do it in front of, without being in front of the American people because he's afraid, so I don't want to do it. It's, it's going to be the old playground bully thing. Well, I'd kick your ass right now, but, you know, we got to go eat lunch. It's, it's, I, I that's think what... it behooves uh, Mr. Biden to slow play this because what's the old saying? The, the more you speak, the, the less doubt that you're a jackass or something like that. Right, right. Uh, uh, better, better, right, better to, better to keep your mouth closed and let people suspect you're a jackass than open it and remove all doubt. Yeah, that's an old, there you go. old saw. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, he has so far, I think, played this very well in realizing that Trump and his tweets 
and and Trump and his his various interviews. I mean that Axios interview. Oh my God, where they're passing the charts and the graphs back and forth. Trump is often his own worst enemy. So let that happen. Hmm? Cherry picks data. I think cherry picking is kind. I, th- I think he, he he makes up things out of whole cloth. I think if if you cherry pick things, at least at the end of that, you have cherries. And 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 I think that no, this is just he just he just again I go back to he just says stuff. He just says stuff. And here's the thing: it's worked for him. It's worked for him. He counts on the fact that the American public is either too busy or in some cases too lazy, or that the, uh, the modern journalistic establishment has made it too hard to fact check. Well, Joel, there's still droves of unmasked supporters coming out to rally in his favor, you know, all over. Now look at the, the Idaho uh, in Boise this week where armed, unmasked, basic militia wanted a seat at the table for discussions. And... There, there was an example of that happening a year ago, a peaceful protest where people were sitting there in front of City Hall, and they all were arrested. Then a bunch of cowboys unmasked come in with guns and ask to break the social distancing barriers within the courthouse there, or the whatever you call it, and nothing happens to them. They get a seat. Uh, you, I see large groups coming out that are, are real strong Trumpsters, so. Well, I don't, I'd, I'd be careful about using the word droves. I mean, yes. Okay. Are, are, has he, has he absolutely abandoned any pretense of playing to the reasonable middle and has basically decided that his thing is to throw red meat to the extreme right to, Why isn't th- that's, more- that's absolutely what he's, what he's decided to do. And so those people are coming out. I mean, look at this kid in Kenosha you know, who, yeah. who went and his mom drove him there and then went out later that night herself and got her camo on and her AR-15 and went out into the woods with, with her buddies. I mean, these are the people that he's playing to because that's, that's kind of what he's got left. And, and so the question is, again, with, with both of these guys, uh, with the undecided numbers being so small, how many of your people can you get out? Can, can, can the Democrats energize their folks and get more of their people out than Trump can get of the far fringes of the party out? That's what's going to tell it, not, not who wants to vote for who, who is going to get up. Or, and by the way, this whole post office and mail-in ballot thing throws a whole new wrinkle into that. Well, that's because Melania doesn't want Donald to uh, get another mail-order bride. Whew, that... <laughs> She was, you know, she wasn't awful. She, no, she was. but but again, the the camera. I go back to what I said about Michelle Obama. the The camera can detect thought. The camera can can really show, and, and, and what if you believe what you're saying. And I felt like watching her. I, I was watching someone who had had a good speech written for her, who was. Uh, able to communicate effectively, but behind her eyes, I felt like I was looking at somebody who didn't always believe the words they themselves were saying. So here's the difference for me. I watched Michelle Obama, mm-hmm. uh, but I listened to Melania Trump. Interesting. So I did not get the keys or, or, the, or the tips or the body language from Melania at all. I had never well, I wouldn't say never, but I rarely hear her speak in public. And 
I didn't think that she was going to be so articulate. And when like Bette Midler came out saying she can't even speak English, she can speak seven languages. And I yeah, no, she's a no, she's absolutely you know, she's but, formidable, formidable woman in her way. Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, bias or prejudice before you give somebody a chance. So yeah. Well, and what what you're talking about is a very interesting phenomenon. You know, the most famous version of that is the 1960 presidential debates between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. And this is back when a lot of people still listened to big political events on radio. And Kennedy, of course, who was younger, who was attractive, who the Kennedy family had friends in Hollywood who could teach them about makeup and cameras. And it was the first ever nationally televised presidential debate and the numbers were stunning the next day the people who watched it on tv overwhelmingly thought kennedy had won the people who listened to it on radio and had not seen kennedy and had not seen richard nixon's you know deep eye shadowed eyes and his three-day growth and all all of richard nixon's famous stuff overwhelmingly thought nixon had won you know so those things can make a huge difference absolutely yeah, that's an interesting point right there. Um, let's talk a little bit about the inflamed or um, exaggerated um, things of Trump's speech. I thought, well, let me back up real quick. I'm talking JFK. Jackie O's garden got replaced by Melania. And that garden, I guess, cost $20 million dollars. To rip up everything she did historically, you know, that was a tearful moment, really. Being a gardener and and a plant enthusiast myself, I was just like, so much history there, and you just whitewashed it. Well, and, and we have rules. I mean, look, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, taped his speech while he was on a taxpayer paid for what was supposed to be a diplomatic government mission to Israel. And, and you're, not, you're not supposed to do – you're not supposed to – you can get in big trouble calling for campaign donations from a government phone inside a government office. That's why every president who is running for re-election immediately has to establish a CREEP, CRP, Committee to Re-elect the President. And you have to have offices outside the White House, and you have to have things outside of, of your area, because those two things, getting you re-elected and running the people's business, are supposed to be incredibly separate things. And again, as, as we've seen over and over again with this president, his, his overarching philosophy is, so make me. Make me. He asked forgiveness yeah. or permission. Right. And I'm going to use the White House for all intents and purposes as a prop and turn the lawn into a giant convention center. And, and you're not that, – that flies in the face of everything we've established and, and all the various different rules for ethical campaigning. So we're talking about body language and tells and – you play poker? A little bit. Been known to so I try to pick up on tells and I try to be mindful of my own tells. Um, and when I'm talking to my son, I, I definitely want my body language to ma- mask my message as well, right? Or to coincide with my message. Mm-hmm. And I thought when he was talking about um, the Jerusalem embassy, I didn't think he believed what he was about to say. <laughs> He was saying, you know, I got it for under $500,000, much less. Very good. You know, kind of just slow playing his words. And I'm thinking, 
didn't you get a $22 million or give out a $22 million contract for that? And now what the drawings cost $400,000. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a huge stretch. I mean, from 21 million to $400,000, that's a big gap. And I could tell that he felt uncomfortable even saying that himself a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a horrible poker player because I'm told I have a tell. You can yeah. tell, like, when I pick up uh, bad cards, uh, t- apparently I, I do this thing. I go, uh, like, a, oh, man, these are, ah, crap. <laughs> and then everybody knows I've got bad cards. But, um, yeah, it's, it's difficult to get a sense, or like watching Rudy Giuliani, or, or um, oh, who, who else? Uh, Nikki, well, Nikki Haley, actually, I was about to say Nikki Haley, but Nikki Haley actually was, uh, she was a great kickoff for the, for the Republicans. Uh, that was another person that I feel like you're, you're watching people, uh, people are watching her get set up for a future beyond this administration. Um, um, those, those people have to decide to a certain degree how much you want to go all in and how much you want to express your loyalty to this president and say whatever he's telling you to say and back up whatever he says versus how much do I want to be able to have a future after this? Look, a perfect example was the Democrats had General Colin Powell speak, okay? Colin Powell, famously a bit conservative, a bit Republican, uh, so he, he sort of looks like a, a big get to come over and speak at the Democratic convention. And for some people, that's very, very impressive. For some of the rest of us, we're never going to forget our, our sense of Colin Powell is always going to be going to the United Nations and selling what he knew for the Bush administration was not true. The right. fact that Saddam Hussein is working on nuclear weapons, so we have to go into Iraq because that and making this this web of untruths that is never going to go away. Like that's something that's always, so how many of these people who are speaking, who are lining up behind Donald Trump right now, how many of them are going to try to have a life past this in politics? And some of the things they said and some of the, the, the stuff they signed on for is for the American public never going to go away. So you gotta you gotta make a decision. You really have to make a career decision of how how much you want to sign on to the train if you if you want that to happen. Now, obviously, for the couple from whatever it was, Missouri, who pulled the guns out on the protest that spoke, they, they don't have that. They don't have that kind of calculus to make. They're they're happy. They're famous for five minutes and they're loving it. Okay, that's that's not something. But for the well, very frankly, for the, the Ivanka Trumps of the world, the Nikki Haley's of the world, uh, uh, they're the people who have to decide, okay, wh- how much video do I want of me signing on for everything he says? Right. It's fabulous. And uh, back to Colin, Colin Powell, mm-hmm. some people, I think, looked at him as a traitor, too, of their party. And sure. that yeah. brings me to, there was a, a Republican that spoke at the Democratic National Convention this year, um, and I don't really agree with all his views, but I'm sure the Republican Party looks at him as a, as a bit of a traitor as well. My question to you is, you know, Howard Schultz tried to do this and Bloomberg, to a lesser extent, is run as a centrist, meaning that we have more things in common down the middle than the extreme left or extreme right. Why mm. is there so much pressure on the shock value of extreme socialist liberals uh, extreme 
alt-right, and that seems to be the, the talking points in journalism all the time and in politics. So why isn't there a bigger focus on the things that we do agree to bring us together as opposed to everything that divides us? Because you don't win that way. I mean, the, so, so first of all, turncoats are nothing new. I mean, it's, it's every year at, at, at the conventions, every, every four years when they do the big conventions, there's always, uh, there's always some big get the, of, hey, listen, we've got this, this Republican who hates Republicans and what they've come to stand for so much, he's come to speak at the Democrat. Or we've got this Democrat who feels like the party has abandoned him and he's going to speak at the Republican. I mean, if you remember Zell Miller, a uh, senator from, from Georgia who went and spoke to the, to the Republican convention. I mean, you have some of these every year. Um, but y- the trick is the, the, the playbook on how you get elected now um, especially, I would argue, on the Republican Party, because as your as your policy achievements are are less and less, you have to paint the other side as extreme more and more. How many times over this last week did you hear them talk about Joe Biden and his socialist agenda? Socialist, oh, the socialists, oh, the socialists. It, it, they made it sound like Joe Biden had been a pretty reasonable guy and then Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren had somehow tased him and oh, have like, like yeah, and have brainwashed him into this socialist agenda that's going to take us down the road to Venezuela. And actually, you and I have, have sat at these microphones before and we've talked about the fact when, when it looked like Bernie was still a viable contender in the race, the goal is... When what the, what the Democrats have to do is when Bernie and AOC say socialism, they want you to think Scandinavia. They want you to think Finland, high rates of satisfaction, universal medical care, number one education system in the world. And what the Republicans want to do is when you hear the word socialism, they want you to think Latin America. They want you to think Cuba. They want you to think Venezuelan dictators, riots in the streets, uh, power brownouts once a day. That, that's that's the, the goal is they have to paint you as extreme because much like you're pointing out right now, the vast majority of Americans feel generally okay in the middle. Different people have different versions of the middle, but yeah. So, so the playbook is you've got to paint your opponents as extreme and, and you have to cherry pick and you have to uh, uh, basically take s- significant single policies and things like that and paint the world for the voter that if you elect my opponent, if you elect Joe Biden, if you elect Donald Trump, that the country will begin to dissolve. And you, how many times did you hear the Republicans say, you will not be in the America that we have had. You will not be in the America that you recognize. That's what drove me nuts. We're, we're in that now. You know, everything that he said would happen. But, but that's the thing. We're always, America is always changing. America is never static. America is not the same in 2020 as it was in 2000, and it wasn't the same in 2001 post 9-11 as it was in 1995, and it wasn't the same post-Vietnam as it was pre-Vietnam. America is always changing, and so to appeal to these voters by saying, if you elect this candidate or if this party gets in power, you won't have the same America you've had before, it's never static. Mm-hmm. That, that's a that's a specious argument. Yeah. Do you think they uh, it was a smart move, or they should have let AOC speak longer? Well, let's let's 
put some context on it, I mean, she she is still basically a first term congressman. I mean, yes, she's powerful. Yes, she's telegenic. Yes, she she the the squad you know is is what the squad is. But very rarely do first term congressmen get to come up and make big convention speeches. Well, I mean, that's rarely do you have eight family members make conventions. Well, that's true too. That's that's on another thing. So so I mean, it's. It's not something that's that's normally done. Would be to to propel her into this Bernie Sanders Elizabeth. I mean, I, I was less concerned about the fact that she didn't get to speak as long as the people who didn't get to speak at all. You know, where was where was Julian Castro? Where where was Beto O'Rourke? Where where were uh, uh, these these voices of of the Democratic bench that are going to have to be the power brokers? going forward. Why was Andrew Yang basically relegated to doing an introduction speech um, in, in the same way that, that Pete Buttigieg was? I mean, if these are the people that you want to carry the water for you in the years going forward, as you potentially try to elect a candidate that if he takes office, by the time he's out of office after being a two-term president, will be 86 years old, you've, you've, you've got to give them more oxygen than, than that. Team, right? You're only as good as your weakest player on your team. Yeah, you got to have a. I mean, what are the Mariners doing right now? Trying to build a farm system. Build a farm system. Build a farm system. Got rid of well, Taiwan Walker. I cannot believe that. Oh yeah, Taiwan Walker. Well, there he's going to come back. They're just renting him out to Toronto for a few months. They're going to they're going to bring him back. But, other than Kyle Seager, I don't know a Mariner. <laughs> you know, Kyle Lewis is the best rookie of the year. Kyle Lewis, incredible. Oh. I, I didn't watch after they got oh. like, no, no. Kyle Lewis, amazing man. He's hitting the cover off the ball. He's got. He's incredible. But I'm that's what for the Seahawks this year. I think the team is stacked. If we have a football season, that'll be fun. Um, September 10th. Get your fantasy. Uh, Shout out but, to um, Sports Illustrated. But yeah, it's it's gonna be. It's gonna be. If you want your party to have a bench, if you want it to have a new generation of leadership. The convention is the place you do it. Look, if you want to see one of the best speeches ever given, ever given by anybody, anywhere, like up there, Gettysburg Address Good, go back and watch the year John Kerry was nominated and watch his inter- one of his introduction speeches by a young first-term senator from Illinois named Barack Obama. That spe- Most of the country has no idea who he is. Most of the country has never heard his name outside of Illinois and the rest of the Midwest. And he walks in and blows the roof off the dump. One of the greatest speeches you will ever see. It's all there. Rhythm, cadence, alliteration, assonance, everything mankind has learned about rhetoric since Demosthenes. And he walks in and just blows it up and everybody looks at him and goes, oh, who's this? Mm -hmm. Here's the next generation. Here's the future. Conventions are still a place where you can do that if you give them time to speak. Yeah, and I think AOC has a huge future. She can. She absolutely can. Uh, Obama, do you think he overemphasized his play in the auto industry and, and saving the economy when he spoke? Well, it's not that he was he was trying to emphasize his. That's one of the things that he handed to Biden. And he was very clear at the time, Joe, do this. Joe, I'm giving you this job. And so it's it's not just that it's, no, it's an Obama thing. It's one of the primary things they put on Biden's resume. And that the Midwest, because remember, what are those states that you lost that you got to get back? 
You got to get back Wisconsin. You got to get back Pennsylvania. You got to get back those voters who voted for Obama and then turned around the next election and voted for Trump. Well, what are those voters? A lot of those voters are factory guys, machine guys, UAW, union guys, auto worker. So the idea of saying, hey, I put Joe Biden in charge of saving GM and GM still exists today. That's a big resume point. Yeah. Um, What do you think about Cuomo's criticism of Donald and and how he's comparing it coming from China versus Europe and all that. Well, you know, Donald's a New Yorker. So you, with Cuomo, you're dealing with somebody who knows him kind of better than anybody. Yeah. They've had to, they've, they've had to work and, and coexist hand in glove for a long time. By the way, if we want to talk about another great speech at a, at a democratic national convention, look at his dad, uh, governor Mario Cuomo made a great speech, um, during the, uh, uh, the, at the midterm for Ronald Reagan, obviously ended up, they ended up losing, but his, uh, speech of, of getting us all there together and all down the trail together is a terrific, terrific speech. Um, I, I think that Cuomo had, was given a specific job and, and that specific job was, Hey, listen, you've been in the place where everybody has seen Corona hit maybe the hardest and you have to speak from a place of experience and pain and and the theme needs to be donald can't see us donald is ignoring us donald can't hear us and and he's too focused on whatever it is a chinese trade deal or calling it i won't even repeat some of the names that that donald trump has given to the coronavirus but the idea that Mar- that, that, that Andrew Cuomo has to be able to talk from a place of, I know this guy, I, I know what's going to happen. And again, I know what's going to happen if we get four more years from him. Everything you've seen, magnify it, and it's going to keep happening. Okay. Uh, Eva Longoria, she impressed me. And yeah. you know, the criticism she had about being a celeb is kind of unfounded because she's very, very strong activist absolutely has been for a while but she um talked about the mail and the majority of social security coming through the mail and i don't think that's a true statement i think the majority of it comes direct deposit to people by a by a landslide um how do you think she did well, the first of all, there is still a lot that comes through the mail, and there's a lot of other governmental checks that, that arrive uh, uh, through the mail. In fact, there's, there's some horrifying statistics on things like hurricanes, whether it's Katrina or what's happening down in, oh my gosh, all, all, you know, best thoughts to everybody who's down in Louisiana and Texas right now dealing with that. Um, people... Uh, it, who who don't evacuate. There's some horrible stats about people who don't evacuate when they should evacuate. Forest fires, things like that, and, and having been given evacuation orders and they stay, and lots of times they end up dying. A lot of times they find out people stay and don't evacuate because they're scared that a check they're waiting on will not find them in their new location. Oh, that's, horrible. Uh, that's horrible. That's absolutely horrible. Um, and that's why when we do things like we look at defunding the U.S. Postal Service for, uh, uh, first of all, people who do evil and wrong things never yeah. do them for, <laughs> they never do them for just one reason, okay? They're playing chess. They have multiple reasons. Um, and so defunding and, and basically crippling the Postal Service, number one, it's going to hurt mail-in 
ballots and mail-in elections, which is going to make it more likely for for a party with a minority to stay in power uh, demographically because fewer people can vote. It also serves the purpose of potentially making it so people are not able to get government help that they need from programs that that same party believes are bad programs anyway. You know, these New Deal and Great Society and War on Poverty programs that they feel like are taking the country down the road to socialism and and were the the problem you know there there's a there's a don't don't get me wrong there there is a a conservative movement in this country that believes that everything in this country has been wrong since the new deal that fdr took us on the road to socialism uh lbj enhanced that with the great society and that we've been on the wrong track since then because we've been teaching people to be dependent upon government. And so anything that makes that more difficult, anything that makes it harder for people to be that way is good. And and so that's behind a lot of this defunding and deconstruction of the postal service. You know, for those people who don't know, the postal service could be profitable, but the government passed the people who want the postal service privatized. They want you to just use UPS and FedEx and all that. They got a law passed that basically the Postal Service has to fund its pensions out 75 years, which is ridiculous. Nobody has to do that. And so it's basically a case of handicapping the Postal Service and making them insolvent and then pointing a finger at them and going, look at you, you're insolvent. We have to, you're not doing your job very well. And and therefore we have to take responsibility from you. Do you think this, um, I I know you got to go for lunch rush there. Um, so I'll let you go here in a moment. But do you think this disruption of the mail service is going to help or hurt either party? Um, I don't know. That it's, it, it depends on how effective it is. Uh, for instance, here in Washington, we're used to voting by mail. Yeah. And and uh, if you're smart, you don't put your ballot in the mail. You take it to the local drop box. You know, my family, we live in Olympia. There's a local drop box right in the parking lot of the grocery store. And we put ours right there. And, and hopefully that's what a lot of people do. Um, one of the things that I think people that we're not talking about a lot that is, is going to be something that's going to be tough for people who aren't used to voting by mail to get used to is the spectacle of election night. You know, we love election in America. We love our spectacles and we love our condensed spectacles. Our we world. love, yeah. right. We love the Super Bowl. We, cause it's all happens all at once. We love, uh, uh, the world series. We, it's we more love like the Olympics and world cup because it's every four years. There you go. Well, okay. There you go. Um, uh, we love, we love big, we love new year's Eve, you know, watching the ball drop and it all just happens there. And we love the spectacle of election night. You tune in and you watch different States on the TV turn red or blue. And before you go to bed, generally, right. You find out, okay. If, if we go to primarily mail in ballots, the price we are going to pay for increased accuracy and increased participation, which is, by the way, a good thing and a price worth paying, is we're going to have to kind of give up the spectacle of election night because stuff is going to take potentially days to roll in. Now, we're used to that here in Washington. Right. We're used to to in, unless the percentages are just absolutely gigantic, the local TV stations and the local newspapers don't declare a winner for days because those ballots keep rolling in. And so uh, the, the, the thing you have to be careful about with that is uh, and, and I guess we, we can end by talking about we're, we're back to talking about speeches again, um, the concession speeches, concession speeches are often overlooked, but they're incredibly important because when it has been declared that there is a winner 
and a loser in an election like, you know, Hillary uh, uh, is going to lose and Donald Trump is going to be our next president. The TV stations, the networks, everybody can say everything they want until, for instance, John McCain comes on TV in 2008 and gives a concession speech and says, I'm out, it's over, then that makes it official. Like, we have elected the first African-American president in our nation's history. It is not Barack Obama's acceptance speech that night that does that. It is John McCain's concession speech that says, the fight is over, that's done that. And it tells your people to stand down, get ready, You've got a new president. Try to work with a new government. In, and, and what we may not get is, is a clean transition of power and a clean election night. There's a lot of what-ifs involved. If we go to primary mail-in voting, when will we know exactly who's won? Once we know exactly who's won, how long will it take for the loser to give a transition speech. If that loser is, for instance, Donald Trump, how long will it take for him to say, I lost? Will he actually stand down or will he say, I've got my lawyers gearing up and we're going to challenge in all these states in court because we think the election was fake. Hey, my people, get in the streets and demonstrate. You know, he's not going to say with your guns, but he's going to mean with your guns. Get, get in the street and demonstrate and let him know you want your voice heard. I mean, is it possible he's going to do as much damage as he can on his way out the door? We don't know. Wow. 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 Lots to talk about. We could go. Lots. On. Oh yeah. We'll be back. Don't worry. Yeah. And I'd love to have you again. Sure. Hey man, this, this works. This way we, we, we've, we've made a, we've got our technology up and running. We've, we've made this work. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> hey, with that said, um, shout out to Island music guild. Thank you for allowing me to come in and get some free studio time the other day for some voiceover work. Um, everybody please patronize Bainbridge strong to support small businesses like the bystander podcast. Amen. You can buy coffee for $15, $5 of each coffee bag. And we all need coffee it goes directly to support the show. Also wild earth dog food. Thank you for being a sponsor and you'll hear a commercial for that going out. Joel Underwood. I always appreciate your time. I'm glad that we're still connected through COVID times and uh, can't wait to talk to you again. Hey buddy, anytime next time, hopefully we'll do it live. Sounds good, Joel. Take care. All right. Talk to you, pal. Hey there. Band of Steve's here. If you've enjoyed the music on this podcast and you'd like to learn music, get in touch with me. Electric bass, guitar, theory, voice, production, writing. Steve Newton Music at gmail.com. Pet owners assume the meat used for pet food is a good thing. But did you know it makes use of the scraps that humans would never eat? The problematic aspect of the pet food industry is the rendered animal material, animal parts that the Food and Drug Administration considers unsafe for human consumption. This rendered meat falls under the four Ds. The food is sourced from animals classified as dead, down, dying, or diseased. And since you're likely feeding your dog the same thing every day, your pet is being exposed to this unhealthy food at every meal. The ingredients used in today's dog foods would shock most pet owners. The Clean Label Project is an organization that tested pet food to find out what's really in it. The group analyzed 80 brands and discovered dangerous amounts of toxic chemicals like lead and mercury. And if you're feeding your dog an animal-based diet, 
your puppy is ingesting the hormones and antibiotics that farm animals are injected with too. Not to mention the bacteria, parasites, and growth hormones that have been associated with raising livestock. Although using decomposed animal tissue for pet food is a violation of the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act, the FDA Center for Veterinary Medicine publicly admits that it's rarely enforced. Popular pet website Dog Food Advisor has reported over 180 dog food recalls since 2009, and the major recalls were related to bacterial contaminants from meat sources. There is no way to truly verify what is in these pet foods. There are currently nine terms used to classify meat, three of which do not need to disclose the animal species it's sourced from. Your dog could easily be eating diseased goat or pig flesh. A research team at Chapman University analyzed 52 commercial pet foods in 2015 and found that 40% of the products tested contain mislabeled meat products. The FDA states that pet foods labeled as premium or gourmet do not need to contain higher quality ingredients either. Well, what can you feed your pet then? Dogs can thrive on a plant-based diet thanks to fermented fungi protein like yeast and koji. Koji is a fungus that has been used in Asian cultures for centuries, and it's known for its prebiotic health benefits. Humans use it to make soy sauce, miso, and rice vinegar. Cruelty-free pet food company Wild Earth is fermenting koji and yeast protein in a sustainable three-day process and turning it into dog food that contains all 10 essential amino acids needed for your dog's health. Dogs don't need to consume unnaturally large-bred animals to get the nutrients they need. Yeast protein provides 49% protein by weight, whereas steak only provides 24%. And fungi's low-carbon footprint makes it better for the earth, too. Your pet counts on you to make the best choice when it comes to food. Make it the right choice.